Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again and to be with you in the good providence of our God. I would direct your attention to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It's a passage quite familiar to you, I'm sure. But so often, those that we have committed to memory early in our walk with Christ, and upon which we have perhaps called more frequently than others, are seldom preached upon. We really never plumb the depths of them and discover what is there, and I'd like to do that today in this most comforting of texts as we continue to soldier on through a difficult time in our world in every way and to seek God's comfort from them. These are the words of the great King Solomon, who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, lo, these many years ago, said, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. This is God's word. May he write its truths irremovably upon our hearts this day. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we assemble today as your people to meet with you and to hear a word from you and to, to sup with you and to know your presence and your comfort and your direction. And we ask as we come before your word now that you, by your spirit, would be our teacher, that you would take these words and that you would embed them deeply within our souls to the point where we are not merely hearers of them, but we are doers of them. Uh, bless me in the coming moments. May my words be your words, for Jesus' sake, in whose name I do pray, amen. The Proverbs are uh, very difficult to preach on, and there's a range of reasons for that, probably the primary one of which is they don't readily lend themselves to successive expositional preaching. They probably, more than any other portion of the Bible, these poetic couplets can be taken out of their immediate context and stand on their own and we get the most direct meaning out of them in terms of their concise and yet complete conveyance of truth. Dr. Derek Thomas has referred to them, and I like this, ancient tweets. Now, that helps us understand in our modern social media era. They are, in a sense, by virtue of the genre in which they come to us, they are character-limited conveyors of wisdom, counsel, for the living of our days in whatever circumstances we may find ourselves. I think they're best understood as the essence of the wisdom called for and taught by the primary writer of the Proverbs, King Solomon himself, this one who was the wisest of men. 1 Kings 4 verse 30 tells us that more than any in the east or in Egypt, he had wisdom, he had knowledge. We know this as we, we study him and his reign over Israel. But I think the Proverbs, of whom he is majority writer, are best understood in light of the overarching message of the other 
wisdom literature portions, namely the book of Ecclesiastes, also given to us by King Solomon. Several years ago, I preached a sermon here out of Ecclesiastes, and a few years after that, did a Sunday school lesson in which we looked at the book, and you may recall if you were here at that time that we concluded that the overarching theme is that the meaning of life is found in the Lord by virtue of it not being found in anything else. Here's a man who had everything, and he comes toward the end of his life, and he is to say, in essence, to us, like Muhammad Ali said years ago, I had the world and it was nothing. There was nothing you could list that this man didn't have, possess, or experience, and it was vanity. And the conclusion of the matter was, what? Fear God and keep his commands, for that is the whole duty of man, the creature. And so what we have in the Proverbs or the snippets, the wisdom of that preacher, the Kohelet, as he is identified in Ecclesiastes 1.1, the instructor of God's covenant people. He's lived, he's had every experience imaginable, and he's here to tell us that we need wisdom. And those are the twin pillars of everything Solomonic. Wisdom, knowledge for the living of life in a God-honoring fashion, and secondly, accompanied by the fear of the Lord. Remember he says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, many of our modern translations say knowledge, but it's really wisdom, the diaet, the knowledge of good things and what is right unto new obedience as we walk by faith in the Lord. And so we have the substance of that. He begins in the first chapter in parental tone as a father addressing a son, calling the reader to move beyond the greed that accompanies a pursuit of personal gain in the world. And in chapter 2, he comes upon the value of wisdom and ramps up his call to pursue wisdom. Even the one who makes it clear in the book of Ecclesiastes that the pursuit of wisdom itself is vain, nevertheless says it's needed, seek it, get it. Without it, you can't live. And then in the third chapter, particularly in the opening 12 verses, he, he continues to tether his words to that great motto we find in verse 7 of chapter 1 about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of the wisdom. He, he showcases godly fear in Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 in three distinct parts, emphasizing how it is that we ought to see God for who he really is, based on his self-disclosure and revelation, and we are to respond with a knowledge of who he is and what he can do, and that ought to cause us to tremble before him. So again, the flags of fear and wisdom are always flying over everything that is taught us by Solomon that is proverbial advice for life. And so these two verses in particular, I believe, push us in the direction of knowing what it means to rest in the perfect providence of God. God's powerful preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. We know that God is good. We sometimes don't understand why the things that we endure in this life happen. Therefore, we need equipping to face that and to endure it for his glory with the knowledge that he has a good purpose in what he is doing. 
that the big picture will, in the final analysis, render something good for the souls of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so what we find here is, given his emphasis upon the steadfast love and faithfulness of God early in chapter 3, and then moving in verses 7 into the calls to honor God and to respond in like fashion by his grace, what we find in verses 5 and 6 are the call to rest in the providence of God, that even as the believer relies upon the sure promises of God, the essence of which is emphasized in verses 1 through 4, and seeks to respond to the gracious provisions of God, the substance of which we find in verses 7 through 12, we are called to rest in the perfect providence of God. Now, we use the word rest quite a bit in everyday language, and we use it spiritually speaking, and it's, it's a good word. It can convey uh, belief and confidence. We use it in, in many contexts, but here I think we get a renewed look at what rest is, bigger picture, if you will. We all long for rest. We, we all long for some relief from that which distresses us, and this can be illustrated both physically and spiritually, both literally and figuratively. For example, physically speaking, and rest, um, I love a very, very firm mattress. I, I almost prefer like a slab with a padding and then sheets. And the reason is because it supports my body and my muscles are not tense during the night and I wake up feeling refreshed. You can probably identify with that, some of you. Or spiritually speaking, we carry around with us untold burdens, do we not? We, we walked in here this morning with them, and, and we just wish that somehow we could lift them off of our shoulders. You know those times that are sweet in life where you're carrying a burden and God in his providence does bring such relief? I remember when I was pastoring the church that I served for 11 years in Manhattan Beach in Torrance, a couple of times during that period, I became ill uh, late in the week and was unable to preach. And I had an elder, a ruling elder, my late friend uh, John Reynolds, who was a very gifted preacher. And I could call John uh, sometimes as, as late as Saturday morning and say, John, I'm not going to make it. And he would say to me, don't worry, pal, rest easy, I've got it. There it goes. I remember the first time I preached in a church in June of 1993, Faith Presbyterian Church in Clinton, Louisiana. And I preached, and a wonderful elder, an older gentleman, and his wife and daughter took me to lunch afterwards. And as I was going to my car, I was approached by a homeless man who wanted food. And I I had to get on the road. I, I had to get going. And that elder came up and took over the situation. I remember as clear as though it were yesterday, that man saying to his family, Honey, this man is hungry. We're going to go get some food. And then he turned to me and he said, Jared, don't worry about this. I've got this. You get on the road. Instant solving of the problem. And, and the stress is gone. Whatever it is, physical or spiritual, or even emotional, those burdens, God is capable and is willing of 
giving us relief and causing us to cast all of our anxiety and those things that beset us and cause us to squirm and to doubt and to be anxious and to give them to Him. And He is our relief. He takes it. And it is gone. We find the the essence of godly wisdom conveying that to us here. And I want to, to look at these four lines in the text that feature three commands and one consequence in four parts in the context of what I'm calling faithful resting. That is, resting in the Lord via the instrument that He gives to us that causes us to cast, as Samuel Rutherford would say, all of our accounts off onto Him and to know that relief in both our bodies and our souls for which we so desperately long. We're going to look first, and each point corresponds with each of the four lines in today's text. We're going to look at the entrustment of faithful blessing, the eclipse of faithful uh, resting, that is, the eclipse of faithful resting, Thirdly, the encompassing of faithful resting, and then the experience of faithful resting. First of all, the entrustment of faithful resting. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, we normally come to these words and we read them, and our conclusion is uh, something like the following. God is calling us, to believe in Him with the whole of our hearts and not to allow any part of our hearts to have enter into them competing hopes or to rest on other things for our salvation and for our sustenance. Now that's all perfectly true and verifiable and affirmable in countless texts throughout God's Word. But I suggest to you that there's more there. When he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, what Solomon is calling his listener, as it were, to do, is to say, entrust, give over to the Lord all that He has given to you that characterizes who you are. Take everything that is in your heart that makes you, you. Those desires, your wiring, despite your sin. Take the way that He has crafted you as His handiwork and the special gifts that He's given to you and entrust them back to Him. Lodge them in who He is in order that He may use you And that he may be glorified in that use. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Take everything about you. Everything that he has inclined you to as his creature. And house them in him. And expect that he will work his purposes in you. This is the same word we translate trust here that we find in verse 9 of Psalm 22 where David confesses, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. Now obviously there he's not talking about a cognitive realization as an infant at the time of nursing realizing that he needs salvation. What's he saying? No, he's saying you caused me 
to be who I became, whom you declared as a man after your own heart, and in so doing, inclined me to certain ways, equipped me with certain gifts and abilities and capacities, and designated me to be one who would give those to you. He says in verse 10 of Psalm 22, Oh, on you was I cast from my birth. He didn't cast himself. Who did the casting? He cast David upon himself. He is bending David toward himself, and he is fashioning him after his own heart. And the one of whom that is said to be true, and indeed that is all who trust the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David, the call and the responsibility is to take that which he has given to you and rest it in him, entrust it to him. Take what he has made you a trustee of and place him in control of it willfully for his use. Give over to him all that is in your heart, all that characterizes that heart that he has made his own, that he might expedite your growth in grace and hasten your sanctification. It's always a blessing to hear the testimonies of people who, like Solomon, have had fame, have had power, have had influence, uh, have had wealth, and, and to hear them, some of them in pretty high places, be converted, be changed radically at some point in their life, and to hear them speak of those past things as though they meant nothing to them, and they just wanted to spend the rest of their days glorifying God and serving Him and making Him known to everyone around them for as long as they would live. We could fill an afternoon, I'm sure all of us, talking about and, and sharing accounts of such things. But I was thinking recently about the words of one such individual, Bobby Richardson, the former Major League Baseball player. He played for the Yankees back in the uh, 50s and 60s, I think holds the distinction of being the only man to be the most valuable player of a World Series of a team who didn't win the series uh, in 1960. But nonetheless, uh, he has traveled and has basically been a lay preacher since he retired. He's still going in his mid-80s. And he would really tell the truth to people. He does. He would speak, and he, and he hits people with the gospel. He doesn't water anything down. But one of the things I find interesting in virtually all of his talks, he has a common line in it that is very subtle at first. It's a common ground line that would be a hook for anyone in any type of audience. Bobby Richardson, before he gets into all the particulars of his life and what it was and what he wants to do in the future, would always say, it is important how we live our lives. And then he segues into the purpose of life, the giver of life, the savior of sinners, giftedness, and how it is that those gifts are to be used to his glory to further his purposes in his kingdom. That's an example of a starting point of someone who is calling everyone within his hearing to hear truth, but in so doing to take whatever is theirs, whomever they are, and entrust it back to the Creator. If we're to find the meaning of life, we must look to Him, and if we are to have success in godly terms, by God's standards, 
all that is ours must be embedded in Him. The antidote for a wasted life is trusting the one who gave you life and placed inclinations and tendencies and everything good about you that he has worked in you within your heart in order that he may fulfill his purposes and he may be glorified and you may be his instrument in such a way that there is nothing that obstructs what he desires in you and there is nothing that serves as a roadblock for him using you to bless others and to be purveyors of truth. One of the reasons I wanted us to, to sing that great hymn by Francis Ridley Havergill moments ago, Take My Life and Let It Be, is in order that during the sermon and considering this point, uh, we might be able to reflect back on it and the way in which it pointedly calls us to do just that. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take it all because it's not mine, it is yours. And if you are to know rest, all of those things that we have the tendency to look toward that are ours and idolize, we take them and we say, God, they are yours, have your way with us. That is the entrustment of faithful resting. But secondly, we have the eclipse of faithful resting. This is in the second line in verse 5b, and it's in the negative. As I pointed out time and time before, it's good to have things emphasized in the negative because our constituent nature is such that we tend, when we hear things in the positive, not to take them as seriously. He says, and do not lean on your own understanding. I was tempted to call this point the elimination of faithful resting, but the more I, I, I went in and, and got deeper in it, I, I found something uh, very, very critical in that regard in terms of the maintenance of knowledge as we pursue it, but rather than jettisoning that, letting the knowledge of God eclipse or engulf or overtake and have primacy, applicably speaking, in life to our own understanding. Lean there is very similar to trust. When we, we lean, we are taking everything and we are eliminating it from ourselves and casting it on to another. We are propping ourselves upon that one or thing in the hopes that all of the pressure is taken off. So it's the same concept as trusting in that sense. But when he says, do not lean on your own understanding, he's not saying don't have understanding. Remember, this is the one who has called us to get wisdom and understanding, so it, it can't be that. But rather, he's saying, at the end of the day, in the final analysis, you don't look to your understanding, you look to God's understanding. How do we know the understanding of God? We don't. 
other than what he has revealed to us in his word. And we take that, and it is that upon which we rest. I like the way the Church of England evangelist in the 19th century, Charles Bridges, put this, speaking particularly of Proverbs 3, 5b, he says, it is our plain duty not to neglect our understanding, but to cultivate it diligently in all its faculties. In a world of such extended knowledge, ignorance is the fruit of sloth, dissipation, and misguided delusion. But lean not to thine understanding, lean to the Lord. Self-dependence is folly. Whenever in our trials we consult our own understandings, hearken to our self-reasonings, though they seem to be good and tending to our preservation, yet the principle of living by faith is stifled, and we shall in the issue be cast down by our own counsel. Aren't those words convicting? Yet the principle of living by faith is stifled. Do you realize that when you and I lean to our own understanding, which is a daily temptation, we begin to walk by sight. And it's poor sight. And it's sight that fails. And we know this. We have to have our final resting point in a given matter with the knowledge of God as he's revealed it to us. Our understanding may be good, but it's fallible. It may be majority accurate, but in the final analysis, it's untrustworthy with regard to the rest for which our souls are looking. And so he's saying, seek truth, pursue wisdom, acquire knowledge with the mind God gave you, but when it comes to decision-making, acting upon his promises, and living in the fear of his, yield your understanding to his. I like the way the 17th century Puritan William Bridge has put it, stand free of the monopoly of your opinions. Wow. I mean, don't we love our opinions? And don't we love other people to hear them? And don't we expend a great deal of energy trying to push them? Boy, I'm going to show them. And some of us have become uh, quite adroit at that over the years. And God is saying here by His Holy Spirit, uh, your opinion at the end of the day doesn't matter. What God says is what matters. And what God says is what will usher you to rest. I like the way, given the negativity of the expression in the verse, that yet another Puritan, John Howe, has captured this concept positively in the first volume of his works. Howe says this, The things you know not, and which it is necessary you should know, he will teach you. Such things as are are of real necessity to your true and final welfare, not which only serve to please your fancy or gratify your insecurity, for his teaching respects an appointed certain end, suitable to his wisdom and mercy and to the calamity and danger of your state. The teaching requisite for perishing sinners was what they might do to be saved. And when we have cast about in our thoughts never so much, we have no way to take but to yield ourselves to God, who will then be our most undeceiving guide, to whom it belongs to save us at last, 
to him only it can belong to lead us in the way to that blessed end. That's what we have. The eclipse of faithful resting causes us, yes, to have understanding, but to allow it to be eclipsed by the one with greater and perfect understanding who is pleased to reveal himself to us as he leads us as our guide in the way to that blessed end. Well, thirdly, the third command that we have here is the encompassing of faithful resting. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In everything about you, in everything that you do, in everything that you undertake, in every aspect of your life, acknowledge him. That is to say, cause what he has said to swallow up and to encompass anything that you might say and conclude yourself. This comes on the heels of the previous uh, proverb, and it feeds right into this matter of the necessity of the primacy of how God has defined wisdom in his word and why Solomon calls us to get that wisdom. You know, I was listening to the radio recently, and I heard a pastor talking about wisdom and how many people he had counseled and how many people he had talked to with so many problems in ruinous lives. And he said, people will get to the point, sometimes even before they're saved, where they will admit, I've really ruined my life by poor decisions. He said, it doesn't take Aristotelian logic to figure out that unwise decisions take you to bad places. Therefore, wise, better decisions will make life better and more enjoyable. Now, that's not rocket science. We don't think uh, in those practical terms so often in the Reformed community, but we ought to. And what he's saying here, in all your ways acknowledge him, I hate to be so simple, and I have to credit Dr. Bruce Walkie, who's one of my favorite Old Testament scholars for saying this, but here's what acknowledge really means. It means in everything, bring God in on it. Ooh, we bristle. We don't do anything. God does it all. Oh, we don't like to. Well, the fact of the matter is we hit the ground running every day in our sinful nature, doing everything we can to push him out of the picture. And there's a responsibility here. There's action to which he calls us. And that word, acknowledge, means to, to invite God and to bring God with the intent of fellowshipping intimately with him. To, in a sense, worship him. Seek wisdom from him with the overarching purpose of ascribing to him all the glory and honor that is due to his name. Bring him to bear in all things with the expectation that there will be a sweet fellowship between you and between him. We, we see this, do we not, as we look at, at Scripture, as, as those whom God calls to follow Him, there is inevitably worship or some action that is indicative of the submission of the will to God's sovereignty. I, I think of Abram starting out following God coming to Hebron, what does he do in the final analysis? Makes an altar for sacrifice. Then he moves on to the oaks of Mamre 
and he's there in chapter 13. What happens? The, 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 the final portion of that section telling us about his travels uh, from Bethel to Hebron. He builds an altar. There's always this desire for intimacy with God on the part of the wise and those who faithfully rest in Him that brings about and blesses with a sense of special intimate fellowship wherein our dependence upon Him is expressed and He is honored and He is glorified. And the beauty of our gracious God is not only that He visits us he will respond when we call upon him to come into situations but he even helps us he even shows us what to do i i think for example of samuel in first samuel 16 you may remember there's just a couple of verses there that tell us something that we we often overlook 1 Samuel 16, uh, Saul is on his way out, and Samuel is about the business of finding his uh, successor. And uh, he's a little ill at ease about going down there. He doesn't want to go down there uh, into that area where Jesse and his sons are to make the selection. He fears that Saul might track him down and kill him. Now, that's our main anxiety in life, ultimately, isn't it, if we're honest, that we want to do the will of God, but we somehow fear the consequences of it. Look at verses 2 and 3 there. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, reading on in verse 4, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. It was okay. You see people who aren't told erecting altars and sacrificing in worship, and you see the saints of God, those major players, those we respect, those we're not told a lot about in terms of their sin. Samuel was honorable. We like Samuel. Uh, we, we think highly of him. And he's afraid to do the Lord's work. And, and so in his inability to get to the point of erecting the altar and sacrificing and worship God, he, he calls out to God. And what does God do? God helps him along to that point of being able to know what to do. And what is it? It's the same thing. It's worship me. It's sacrifice. It's come to me and be intimate with me and know fellowship with me as you have brought me into the situation. You say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament. But doesn't this sound remarkably familiar when you think of the words of the greater Solomon years later and in his words to a lukewarm church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.20, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door to me, I will come into him, and I will eat with him, and him with me. 
That's written to the church, beloved. That's not written to pagans. Jesus, dare I say it, he stands at our doors and he knocks and he desires to be brought in. And when we do, when we acknowledge him and he encompasses our circumstances, what do we find? We find not only direction and answers to our questions, we find that he eats with us, he sups with us. We have intimate fellowship with him. That's a good thing to be reminded of on the day in which we're taking the Lord's Supper. But then finally, we need to see the experience of faithful resting. The experience of faithful resting. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Every route you take, he is with you. He is directing it. And it is unobstructed. Man will die to dust returning, as we sang in our opening hymn, and his purposes will end. But God's purposes will not. God's purposes are straight to their own effect as he has divinely intended it in the hearts of his people. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 107.7 says, He led the redeemed by a straight way until they reached a city to dwell in. Now, when we consider Him and making our path straight and all the paths we're on today, the ones that we don't understand, the ones that are hard, the ones that are difficult, we need to be reminded that ultimately He is leading us to a city to dwell in. And it's our heavenly home. And he is the director of that journey. I personally prefer the translation, and he will direct your paths over, make straight your paths. Not because there's anything wrong, per se, with straight, because as I says, straight uh, means uh, that divine direction will not in any way yield to being thwarted or obstructed. But di- direct uh, brings with it the idea of his governance, and his leading us through many dangers, toils, and snares, as, as Newton says. If you, if you use the word straight in our English-speaking minds, we tend, if we're not careful, to see that as somehow being smooth, or, or we'll, we'll go to A point from point A to point B in some straight line, and there won't be any problems. No, There will be problems, and there won't even be linearity along the trip, but God directs the journey. Now, this is a technicality that I learned several years ago, but did you know there's a difference between a non-stop flight and a direct flight? In everyday conversation, we talk to people and we say, oh, did you get a direct flight? Meaning, did you go straight from the city you took off from uh, to the city you landed in the same aircraft and without any stops? That's what we mean, but technically that's non-stop. If I get on a southwest 
jet in Los Angeles headed for Baltimore, and I stop in Vegas, and I stop in Austin, Texas, and I stop in Nashville, and then go to Baltimore, and it was the same plane the whole way. We just landed so that some passengers could deboard and others could be picked up. If I get to Baltimore on the same aircraft I took off out of LAX on, that is a direct flight, technically, though it had stops. That's why I like that translation. You're going to have all kinds of legs along the way to that great city. You're going to stop. You're going to take off again. There's going to be turbulence. There's going to be things you don't understand. There are going to be winding roads and valleys and hilltops. But along all the way, God is A, bringing you heavenward, and B, He's directing every movement along the way. That's the experience of faithful resting that you and I have the privilege of enjoying. I wonder if we think in those terms as we consider these three commands and this this great, this happy, this delightful and blessed consequence of faithful resting. Elon Foster, the 19th century Methodist in Brooklyn, New York, told the story of a young girl who had gone to her father's place of work to accompany him home. And she arrived and she said to him, Papa, let's play a game. Let us pretend that I am a little blind girl and you must let me hold onto your hand tightly and you must lead me along the way home and tell me where to step as I go. And so she closed her eyes and clasped her father's hand. And the journey homeward consisted of several steps up and down and around corners, some rough places, some smoother places. But they arrived home and the girl opened her eyes and exclaimed, wasn't it nice, Papa? And her mother greeted them and asked her daughter, weren't you scared with your eyes closed all that time? And the girl replied, oh no, for I held tightly to Papa's hand and I knew he would take me safely over the hard places. And Elon Foster said, oh, that we would trust in our Lord this way and never doubt as to His way, knowing that it is the way by which He will at last bring us to rest in Him forever. That's Proverbs 3, 6b. And the truth of the matter is, friends, is it not, we don't have to close our eyes because as sinners, our eyes are so often shut to the wisdom and the counsel of God that in fact we are not bringing Him to bear upon situations He gives us eyes to see at conversion, but we so often close them. But even still, in that obstinance toward Him and in that rejection of His counsel, He has us. He has our hands and He guides us every step of the way as the director of our paths because we're not just out there willy-nilly doing whatever but He is bringing us at last to rest in Him forever. As we come to the Lord's table 
now, though in different manner that's rather odd to us. I think it's a good thing to pause and to be reminded of the fact that we come and, and we're not coming to an altar. We're coming to a table where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus was for our sins. And we remember his words, for example, in Matthew 10, 32, that everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who brings me on to their sinful situation by grace through faith, I will bring him or her on before my Father's bar of justice. Did you see that? That Paul has developed very soberingly in Romans chapter 1 what happens to the one who didn't see fit to acknowledge God. What does he say in verse 28 there? Given over to a debased mind to do those things which ought not to be done. Read the end of Romans chapter 1 sometimes. That will show you what happens to those who in all their ways don't acknowledge the true and living God. But as we come to this table, we have the privilege of joining in that great response that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 15 calls us to, that in Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name all that He is, all that He has done, that is what He has put in the hearts of those He calls to trust in Him. May we give all our accounts over to Him, lean not on our understanding, but yield to His perfect understanding, and in every way bring Him in, not push Him out knowing that He then will direct us on our paths. And they're not just paths that lead nowhere. But they're the way by which He will at last bring us to rest in Himself forevermore. Amen.